0: Welcome to Season 2, Episode 21 of the Daily Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Avery, and this episode features my conversation with Father John Baldwin, Professor of Historical and Liturgical Theology at the Boston College School of Theology and Ministry. As an alumni of the STM and a former student of Father Baldwin, this meant a lot to me because Father Baldwin helped form my lens for sacramental theology and also took a chance in helping me create the student-led academic journal Lumen Envy Day. This journal is still around today at, at the STM and I'm forever grateful for Father Baldwin helping me to take on that project. In our conversation, we initially discuss his Jesuit roots and his early recognition of the relationship of liturgy with ecumenism. The conversation then takes many turns from Pope Francis' focus on marriage and family to post-Vatican II liturgical reform. Along the way, Father Baldwin ultimately shares his love for all liturgical seasons and even reveals a hidden passion for architecture. As always, please leave your comments on the blog or tweet at us at DailyTheology. I'll also be posting this week the sacraments book mentioned in the podcast and the student journal, Lumen Invitae. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to another Daily Theology podcast today. I'm very excited about this. Uh, I've had this professor before. I consider him a great friend. Today, our guest is John Baldovin, Father John Baldovin from the School of Theology and Ministry, a professor of historical and liturgical theology. Thanks for so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Mike. It's been a long time since I've been at the STM, so I'm really excited to be back here. I get really nostalgic and know I've done a lot of great work here and I've had a lot of your, I have had a couple of your classes and I've, I've enjoyed them greatly. So, this is a great treat for me. One of the questions we ask first is what was the path that led you to theology? and perhaps the Jesuits as well if you like to speak on that.
1: Sure. The uh oddly enough, uh my first experience with theology was when I was a uh, sophomore in high school which was around 1962, I believe. Uh so just before the council was getting started, just uh, just as the council was getting started. So it was a very exciting time and uh, we had a lot of young Jesuits teaching us. I was at a a Jesuit prep school in Jersey City, New Jersey. And one day in the library, I just, my eye fell upon a book. I guess it was on the new bookshelf or something. And I was curious. I picked it up, brought it home and read it. I was a big reader as a kid. And it was Hans Küng's the, uh, The Church, The Council and Reunion. And it was a fairly accessible book, even for a sophomore in high school. <laughs> sophomore and in high school, picking up a Hans I know, Kuhn it's, book. It, it does sound a little bit uh, <laughs> like uh, I was uh, a little premature or whatever. And then that just led me, I, I got interested and I uh, kept reading in theology. I, I can't remember too much about what I read after it, but I did read Godfrey Diekmann's Come Let Us Worship. Little did I know then that I would end up, you know, studying liturgy and sacraments. And then during the the rest of my time, lots of interesting books came out, even when I was in high school. Uh, John Robinson's uh, Honest to God, Harvey Cox's The Secular City. These were wow. really uh, yeah. major mid nineteen sixties books, and they were kind of groundbreaking. And
0: did you did you have a lot of teachers who were guiding this reading, or was no, it? No,
1: no. I would. Uh, we had a lot of Jesuit, uh, young Jesuit. Scholastics, as they call them, you know, right. uh, people who were in training, who were very much up on uh, the church, what was happening in the church and in the culture. They were terrific. They would introduce us to ecumenism by taking us over to New York City, to various other churches, um, not to mention taking us places like the Catholic Worker and uh, introducing us to kind of Catholic social movement. So, but in class we got pretty traditional theology. Our right. religion classes. Then I went to a Jesuit college, College of the Holy Cross, here in Worcester. And from the get go, I was pretty interested in theology. There was no theology major there in those years. So I ended up being a classics major.
0: So for lay theologians now, if back then, you couldn't be a theology major in a way. Like you almost had to be something like a classics That's or something correct. else. Yeah. yeah,
1: you could do wow. classics, you could do philosophy. Uh, because it was thought that theology really was for priests or priest candidates and at the end of their training. So they always did uh, the humanities and philosophy first. And so this was thought of somewhat as the uh, equivalent in college. Uh, they had started teaching more theology in addition to philosophy. We had, I had, I guess, uh, four or five semesters worth of philosophy uh, when I was in college. Wow, and um,
0: that is a lot of philosophy.
1: It is a lot of philosophy, and then I took, then I took a lot of as much theology as I could in a you know in a liberal arts curriculum, and I got very interested in the New Testament and the early church, uh, because of my classics background, of right. course, because I had studied Greek, Latin, and some Hebrew, and ended up in my senior year writing a thesis on the ministry and organization of the primitive church up until the third century. Which in which I was able to make good use of my classics background.
0: Have you have you gone back and read that at all? Like now now I've
1: looked at it. You know, it's, it's a little <laughs> jejune at this point. You know, a scene in nineteen sixty nine, and the and the, the scholarship is a little um, it's a you, it's out of date, <laughs> but some of it's not good. A lot of a lot of things were being written, like Hans von Kuppenhausen's Kamp, book on uh, ecclesiastical authority. And uh, order in the early church uh, had just come out in English and things like that. Wow, and
0: that's still a topic today. That's still still going
1: lively topic. I'm teaching theology of the priesthood as we speak, so yeah, it's an interest that I've kept up with over the years. So I hope my thought has matured a bit.
0: (laughs) So when does the the Jesuits come in? When do you? I uh,
1: well, it was a Jesuit school. I'd gone to a Jesuit prep school, and the idea of being a priest had been in my mind uh, even in high school, but. I was really, uh, I was really impressed deeply by the Jesuits in high school, and then again in college. They were great teachers. They were wonderful people. They were, they were so uh, energized and enthused by kind of like the the new life in Catholicism at that time. The Council was just ending in my freshman year of college. Pope Paul. The this is what seventy years ago now. 60 years ago. Pope Paul VI was speaking at the at the United Nations 50 years ago.
0: Yeah.
1: uh, Was speaking at the United Nations. That was was a landmark event that I was reminded of when Pope Francis uh, spoke there a couple of weeks ago. So it was a very, and ecumenism was alive and well. There were lots of ecumenist groups. We'd go out to other colleges like Smith College, you know, out uh, in western Massachusetts. Get lots involved with lots of ecumenical dialogue, even as students. So it was an extremely exciting time, and it was a good time to join the the Jesuits. It was a funny time in the church. There was a lot of tumult, a lot of confusion, a lot of experimentation, uh, liturgical experimentation. But I um, I thought this was a good path for myself. I felt called by God to do it, and so it's a decision I never regretted.
0: Oh, nice. Well, when you speak about experimentation. Was this just an American thing or was it?
1: No, I think it was all throughout. I mean, I don't know about the global south or eastern Europe. Eastern Europe, you know, those those countries uh, which were under communist rule would have not, not been very likely to have much experimentation. They had other things to worry about. So Catholicism remained fairly traditional in those countries. With, with you, know, you can understand that. But there was a lot of experimentation, especially in Northern Europe. The Netherlands were well known for lots and lots of experimentation. So once the breath of fresh air came into the church, there was a lot of experimentation, some of it good, some of it not so good. I mean, uh, the dust has kind of settled <laughs> in the last 30 or 40 years. Right. I mean, that's inevitable.
0: So you bring up, you kind of grew up with ecumenism in high school, into college, and then I was reading your chapter in The Legacy of Vatican II, this book by a bunch of scholars who wrote a bunch of chapters in it, and you talk about this idea of ecumenism and liturgical reform. They went hand in hand in making Catholicism more accessible. You even used the word like normalization? In a way, like which I thought was fascinating. What, what do you think the relationship of, of acumenism and the liturgical form, reform is today? Is it still working like yeah. that, or is it different?
1: It's it's weaker, but it's still alive. Let me quote one of my former colleagues in the liturgical field, now deceased, the Methodist James White, who taught for many many years at Notre Dame. So it was in very much a living ecumenist. Once at a, uh, a meeting of liturgical theologians, liturgists in uh, 1980, as a matter of fact, in Los Angeles, Jim said, uh, why teach ecumenism when you can teach liturgy? <laughs> and he got a tremendous response from the, wow. uh, the people who were gathered. If you look at the reforms that happened after Vatican II, so many of them were inspired by what we did in the Catholic Church. The the prime example, I think, is, well, two prime examples are the uh, the lectionary, the three-year lectionary, and then the centrality of the celebration of the Eucharist, uh, which a lot of churches had not been big on. They were enormous advances. It wasn't as though there wasn't a liturgical movement in the Protestant churches and Anglican churches prior to Vatican II, but Vatican II gave them a great shot in the arm. And to this day, when I go to, I belong to two ecumenical societies, the North American Academy of Liturgy and the ecumenical international group uh, called Societas Liturgica, which we just met in, uh, in Quebec this past summer. The spirit of ecumenism is very much alive in those people, in us, but I would say it's weakened quite a bit in the churches. And that there's, it's no, no secret that the Catholic Church has really retrenched a great deal, and that's a pity. That's a a real shame. And I know that I know a number of Protestant, Anglican theologians who feel very badly about that. In in fact, at times, somewhat resentful.
0: One of the things I would like to go back to is I I noticed on your CV you went to to Yale, which is not a Jesuit school. What led you to a Ph.D. at Yale?
1: Ah, okay, good. It's not but it's not a Jesuit school. It's not even a Catholic school, but it is uh, Jesuit-friendly and very Catholic-friendly at the time that I went, and I think it continues to be. They want a Catholic presence there, and they have a Catholic presence there. Yes. I had two—well, there were a number of good choices uh, for graduate school in liturgy. About the, the middle of my time doing theology at Weston School of Theology in, in Cambridge, where I had some excellent professors, Edward Kilmartin, who was a truly great sacramental theologian, and uh, John Gallen, who was one of the real inspirational figures in the liturgical movement, Catholic liturgical movement in the U.S. I changed from from wanting to do—I changed several times in my uh, career. Naturally, I, when as we all I was coming do. out of college and entering the Jesuits, I almost went. If I didn't enter the Jesuits, I would have gone to uh, the University of Chicago. To study second-century Christianity with uh, Robert Grant, huh. but then my interests shifted, and I was scheduled. I mean, the society was interested in my going on to study systematic theology. But then, during theology, I really became interested in, in liturgy because it seemed to me that that was so much where the rubber hit the road.
0: Was there anything in particular that sparked it? Like a any...
1: well, a couple of courses early on in my time at Weston with Kilmartin and with Gallon, and the fact that. The thing I like most about liturgy is the study of liturgy is it puts together the historical the scriptural uh, systematic and the pastoral all of them are involved in a good liturgical theology and a good approach to liturgy and so that's kind of the whole business you know historical pastoral and systematic i find it a, it's hard for me to write anything in which i don't do you think all of, this? of combining uh, all three of those.
0: It's kind of a, I mean, a beautiful way of doing systematics, to be honest with you. Hearing, hearing that, like in a way, it
1: is. And I mean, liturgy become popular to say that that liturgy is very foundational for doing theology. You know, we use the tag, the rule of faith is the rule of belief, or lex orandi, lex credendi. But you asked me how I came to choose Yale right. uh, when I was looking at the end of my theology studies, and I taught briefly at Le Moyne College uh, after I was ordained. When I was looking at schools, uh, two really appealed to me. There were a number of very good places the Institut Catholic in Paris, uh, Sant'Anselmo in Rome, Catholic University, all very good. But two attracted me, especially because of my historical interests in liturgy. And uh, they were Notre Dame, which is uh, still extremely strong and wonderful. And then, but I was attracted particularly to one liturgist, a liturgical theologian, Aidan Cavanaugh, who was a Benedictine who was teaching at Yale. So although I went to a school that was not a Catholic school, I still uh, went and was mentored by a, a Catholic. I had several other excellent, excellent teachers like George Lindbeck and David Kelsey. My major was basically uh, systematic theology with a, a minor in liturgy because that's, you couldn't really major in in liturgy at uh, Yale. But I got an awful lot of my, out of my association with Aidan Kavanaugh, who taught me an awful lot about, not about, the con- only the content of theology, but how to do it and how to do it with some flair. I still envy his for <laughs> writing.
0: That's good. That's good. Do you have you looked back at your dissertation at all?
1: Yes, I still use my dissertation. I'm lucky, luckily, I also had other people that I was able to be in contact with while I was at Yale. Two significant figures in liturgical history that really, really helped me quite a bit. One was Thomas Talley, who was a great expert and wrote one of the major contemporary books on the liturgical year. And the other was Robert Taft, Jesuit, who was extremely helpful to me. Taft is the one after a conference at Dumbarton Oaks in DC, which was on Byzantine liturgy, at which he gave one of the major papers that I attended with Cavanaugh and some others. Taft urged me to do a dissertation on the so-called Stational Liturgies. He said no one's really tried to put together the whole question of how they relate to one another because there were three major centers in the late antique world that uh, had a liturgy that went from place to place on different feast days with the bishops celebrating. And they were Jerusalem, Rome, and Constantinople. And so there he handed me uh, a dissertation topic on my platter And it was needed. Uh, It was a a necessary, you know, it was a a lacuna in the literature, and it was good enough, I guess, uh, (laughs) to say. Uh, It was good enough by the uh, time I finished writing it that he wanted to publish it in a very prestigious series, Orientalia Christiana Analecta. That got me off and running and gave me perhaps a, a reputation better than I deserve. But it's, it's still used quite a bit. It's still referred to a lot. And I use it quite a bit because it has so much to do with the liturgical year. And the calendar and the celebrations of the liturgical year are so central to any understanding of liturgy, any good understanding of liturgy, that it, it remains pretty uh, useful, I think.
0: What's your favorite liturgical season?
1: My favorite liturgical season. Oh, that's so <laughs>
0: not that fun. anyone has ever asked you that before.
1: Yeah, Advent, Christmas, Lent, and Easter. I guess are my uh, favorites. <laughs> now, how do I choose? I, yeah, like uh, you got to choose one, those right? They're all of them. How do I choose? I can say I think honestly I really don't have a favorite. Um, I really love all of the seasons. They each have such a terrific character, and if I, if I can use the word texture, texture, texture to them. You know, Advent is the most affecting in some ways. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we're in the northern hemisphere. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I, how I'd feel about Advent if I were in southern Chile or South Africa. In fact, I did spend one good part of an Advent in southern Africa, and it seemed odd to me. But there's the 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 year gets very, the the day gets very short. It's dark. There's that sense of the sense of longing for the coming of Christ, the presence of Christ in our midst, is is palpable because of the the weather, the climate. So Advent is is a very special. Christmas, of course, is a wonderful season. It's so rich in theology. Lent. A lot of my study and my writing has been associated with Lent. So I've got a great uh, interest in Lent. I've written some things about lent in particular and then of course easter is easter it's the crown of the, of the <laughs> easter, is so easter. easter is easter
0: <laughs> right it speaks for itself in it a way speaks for itself that's good I, w- I would like to go back to to vatican ii you you wrote about the public life in this chapter in this book of vatican ii and you you brought up the kennedy brothers i found that incredibly fascinating i was wondering if you could speak a little bit a little bit about why the kennedys were so influential during this time
1: Yeah, the the essay is in a collection that was a conference here at Boston College in honor of the 50th anniversary of Vatican II. And it was run by one of my colleagues, Andrea Vicini, and another internationally very well-known scholar, Massimo Fagioli, whose books on Vatican II are really quite good. And I was asked the the theme of the conference, because there were so many conferences honoring Vatican II 50 years on, uh, the theme of the conference was the public effect of Vatican II. So therefore, as a liturgical scholar, I was uh, asked to do the public meaning of a liturgy constitution. Now, that was a kind of odd assignment because of all the, the aspects of, of Vatican II, you know, li- well, church and liturgy are pretty much internal kind of issues for, for, the, for the church. But there was, of course, the the ecumenical aspect of it, which I've already talked about some. And then when I was musing on how to to construct the paper in a way that might connect to public life, just one day it hit upon me that there were three funerals, that were really emblematic of American Catholicism from the early 1960s up until today, and they were, uh, and they kind of spanned the time time frame too. And they were John Kennedy's funeral in the old right, Robert Kennedy's, which we we're getting used to. The New Right and Ted Kennedy's, in which Edward Kennedy's, in which we were, you know, kind of in full swing. You know, when you could expect the, the liturgy to have settled down uh, quite a bit after Vatican II, and it seemed to me that they did. Uh, they did mirror a lot of what was going on in American society, and and these uh, were such public events that they also introduced Catholicism to an awful lot of people. I mean, just think about about the papal visits, especially the one, the tremendously successful one. Of, a couple of weeks ago, Pope Francis, you know, how they've introduced Catholicism. Well, these these funeral liturgies, uh, which were very well publicized by the media, they had a, quite an effect too. And, you know, John Kennedy's election was, in many ways, uh, Catholicism coming into its own Right. in yeah. the United States. It's hard for us to imagine now uh, what that meant so many years ago, you know, uh, 55 years ago. But it was also the, the council and the the development of the church. Let me go back, if I may, uh, say a word about ecumenism. When I was growing up, it was really somewhat unheard of to uh, walk into a Protestant or a non-Catholic church, even an Orthodox church. Hmm. This was was just not what Catholics did. Now, I grew up in a family in which those issues were not that important. And uh, so when I protested going to my sister's friend's Wedding in a, in a Lutheran church or my cousin's wedding in an Orthodox church. My parents told me to shut up and, <laughs> uh, which is, of course, the best thing they could have done, you know. And then I went to high school and the world was changing and we were introduced to beautifully. If I can, if I can go on further on the, on the subject, especially in my senior year, I remember at, uh, during Advent, a couple of the Jesuit scholastics took us over for a Sunday in New York. And we went to Judson Baptist Church. We probably went to Mass first, but that I don't remember. We went to Judson Baptist Church, which is a very, very progressive church in Greenwich Village. And it was just fascinating to be there. There were actors there. It was just very, you know, it was racially mixed, which was not, not all that common in 1964. Uh, and then uh, in the afternoon, they took us up for Evensong, something I'd never been to before, at St. Thomas's uh, Episcopal Church on Fifth Avenue, which if you've ever been in, it is a, just an absolutely gorgeous church. It was breathtaking, actually. I still find it uh, a wonderful church to walk into. So the world was really changing. And this was part of the public nature, uh, part of the introduction of Catholicism into the into the wider world. You know, we we went from being somewhat of a ghetto, oh, that's a bit that's a bit facile, but <laughs> somewhat of a ghetto up until around 1960 to a full acceptance in the society to the point that now six of nine Supreme Court justices are Catholic and the, right. the speaker, outgoing speaker of the House is a Catholic and the vice president of the United States is a Catholic and a number of people running for president are Catholics. So
0: that, I mean, that, I was going to ask, like, what do, you, what do you think is equivalent today? But you just named all those things that are still there today. Right. Uh, this is, this is a very much a general question, and you've written a lot of this now. Since Vatican II, 50 years ago, many things have changed in the liturgy, especially in terms of participation. 50 years later, in hindsight, what are what are your thoughts, and just in a thesis or a very short kind of way, that we can say what, what has happened and where we're going?
1: Yeah, one of the things I like to say is... Uh when people are critical of the reform of the liturgy post Vatican II reform that we have it in a text but we really haven't tried it yet by and large much of the spirit of the liturgy has not yet has yet to be caught because the idea of liturgy was uh, the idea of real really full participation and one sees it from time to time and in good churches one sees it that connection uh, between the people at the liturgy and with what's going on in the liturgy, and I would say more and more in the, the recent past I've been uh, more and more concerned with, and its connection to the rest of the life of the church, to our works of charity, justice, outreach. It seems to me that if that isn't the fruit of what we do, then, and and of course the the, the holiness of our lives, if that's not the fruit of what we do in church, then I'm, I'm pretty much at a loss as to what it's for. I mean, it's for the glorification of God, but you can't, you can't really separate the glorification of God and the sanctification of human beings. So they go hand in hand. Uh,
0: do you th- I mean, do you think Francis is kind of b- bridging the gap here in terms of like f- bringing the, bringing the compartmentalization maybe as the use of word, not yours, but to kind of bring this back together, this relationship you speak of?
1: Yeah, well, you, uh, you have to you have to realize that Francis is, in this sense, a very traditional Jesuit, and so liturgy is not at the top of his agenda. Uh, I think that's safe to say. Certainly, his style is much simpler than that of uh, his predecessor, Pope Benedict XVI. That's clear. That, that, that you don't have to be very astute uh, <laughs> to uh, to recognize that. Right, uh, but he. My prediction would be that he's not going to do many things uh, in terms of the liturgy itself. Uh, he had the opportunity to uh, name someone more, much more progressive as the uh, the prefect of the Congregation for Divine Worship, Discipline of the Sacraments, and he did not do that. You know, he's a very shrewd person, and he knows uh, pretty much the limits of what he can do and and what he wants to do. I mean, his his energy is on having a poor church for the poor right. and a compassionate church right and i think that's you know i think that's a terrific priority so i don't i don't expect that much from him in terms of liturgy i suspect that at some point we'll inevitably get a new translation of the liturgy but it'll we'll have to wait for these books to wear out if only for economic <laughs> reasons uh but uh you know I. It, as someone who is, who thought that there were alternatives to the strategy of translation that would still have been, much more faithful to the Latin which was needed, uh, post uh, given what we were doing post Vatican II, as someone who thinks that we could have improved a great deal on the 1975 Sacramentary, I think that the um, and and someone who does not particularly like some of the aspects of the new translation, I'd have to say that it's been pretty much a success. It's not been a disaster. I think I think it's harder for the priests who have to pray some of the uh, very awkward collects
0: uh, <laughs> right. you know,
1: that are, are very poorly translated, in my opinion, and sometimes the Eucharistic prayers, which are much too wooden and too literal in their translation and and you could translate faithfully without that that uh, awkwardness i i think that in general i think so it's harder much harder for priests right uh but i think in general for the people it's not been that bad right i mean so, some people
0: of course. so so going back to pope francis uh, is it also a jesuit what does it mean that one of your one of your brothers in christ is is the pope now like, as a jesuit yourself what what does that mean for you
1: well, of course, it's a matter of pride. Huh? Uh, <laughs> and, and you never would have thought, I mean, one never would have thought that that was going to happen. I was uh, absolutely stunned when he walked out on that on that balcony where his name was announced first. I was just completely uh, taken by surprise. But uh, two things. One, he's the Pope. And as the Pope, his being a Jesuit is not of primary importance. The primary importance is that he's the Bishop of Rome. And the leader of the Catholic Church, he's the Pope. On the other hand, if you... I've been very much impressed by a biography by Austin Ivory, the great reformer, I think it's called, which shows how deeply he incarnates uh, Ignatian spirituality. And when you when you know Ignatian spirituality from the inside, you can see it. And, and of course, that's a matter of intense pride. Huh? Right. That our, that our spirituality is so well-represented now by the the Pope of the Catholic Church.
0: Could you explain a little bit, uh, for maybe those who don't know, Ign- Ignatian spirituality?
1: Yeah, I mean, at the heart of, uh, of Ignatian spirituality is a kind of missionary spirit. Some people have been writing about this lately, a real uh, desire to help people convert. And I think one of the most characteristic things is uh, seeing God in all things. Uh, that's... That's what's made Jesuit education uh, one of the things that's made Jesuit education so good. Why Jesuits committed themselves to not only the study of philosophy and theology, but literature and chemistry and biology and economics and uh, sociology, all all the all the, uh, all the major uh, fields of intellectual endeavor, because we do see God in all things. It's not just a some professional desires, but it's really a, a religiously based understanding of the world, of seeing God uh, at, at work in the entire world. And then, of course, there's the, the much more recent, in some ways, uh, thrust in the society of uh, the uh, promotion of faith in the service, service of justice. Huh? Uh, and uh, that is so important to us, that because we realize that those connections between faith and justice are essential for the character of Christianity, but also for its credibility. And he is so in line with, it's so obvious that he's so in line with those those sentiments, that that, that aspect of Jesuit spirituality.
0: The, there's a synod in the family going on right now, and we talked about the Francis effect on liturgy, but not so much on sacraments. I, I know he's spoken a little bit about marriage and annulments with divorce and whatnot, as well as... I like through the news has talked about like women deacons a, a little bit. What are your thoughts on these conversations, maybe possible changes, or even just the synod itself on the sacraments? Because I know you do historical theology with the sacraments as, as well as sacram- sacramental yeah. theology.
1: It's interesting how uh, wide ranging the topics that the synod are being brought up at the synod are. Let's take first the uh, the whole idea of women's diaconate. I saw uh, somebody's comment on the internet that uh, really they didn't they didn't think women's diaconate was quite that much pertinent to the family. But but once once you start talking about the family, you, in a sense, you're talking about everything. So you're too, you are talking about the, It does open the door to talk about the role of women in the church. The diaconate for women, for example, I've been saying for a while, I think, is, is there's no theological reason that I can see, especially since there were women in the early church, East and West. There's no good theological argument against it. And uh, I would think we'd be a lot better off if we had women deacons. Now I can see that some people would think it's a slippery slope, but I'm right. not going to go there. The other questions like annulments and even the question of communion for the divorced and remarried, these, I think the, the, the fear and the pushback on them is as symbolic as it is theological. Let me say, let me explain what I mean. Okay. Uh, I think they symbolize a kind of loosening of Catholic discipline to people. I don't think that's certainly not theologically uh, accurate. The, the, the loosening up of some of the requirements with regard to, with annulments, for example, it seems to me that what the Pope is trying to do is trying to have a more compassionate church. He's not, saying, he's not saying that we should have Catholic divorce, which is what some people have uh, you know, complained about. I don't think he's saying that at all and it's quite clear that the catholic church believes that marriage is for life and that marriage is indissoluble right but there are occasions in which and uh, every as everybody knows uh, annulments are appropriate it's it's good that we can do that to recognize that a sacramental marriage was never there uh, in the first place. And it's hard for people to understand that distinction. It is it is somewhat of a sophisticated distinction. But on the question of the divorced and remarried, nobody's saying that admitting in certain cases, people, who especially people who were the innocent victims of a, of a tragic breakup of a marriage, as there are many, that, that they're re- ad- readmitting them to Holy Communion. Uh, no one's saying that that means that, the, the, that marriage is not forever and that marriage is indissoluble. It it seems to me it's a compassionate approach i mean i think the pope has said quite clearly that holy communion is is uh, is, a, is a medicine it's not it's not a, a reward for a life well spent so i and and the the eastern churches have from time immemorial understood this you know they allow for divorce and remarriage though they are quite clear on the fact that marriage there is only one sacramental marriage and in fact As far as they're concerned, even if you're a widow or a widower, there's only one sacramental marriage, unless there's an annulment. So I think to say that this is a disaster, as many are saying, I think they're thinking more symbolically. Uh, They're thinking that the church is weakening its witness. But uh, I don't think they're on strong ground theologically. Hmm. Uh, Maybe sociologically, you could make that argument. but, But theologically, I don't think they're on strong ground.
0: Gotcha. I would like to to move to teaching. You t- teach at the School of Theology and Ministry, which is, wasn't always the School of Theology and Ministry. Uh, it used to be called Weston. Well, the
1: School of Theology and Ministry is the creation of two different schools or institutes. Uh, in the early 1970s, the Institute for Religious Education and Pastoral Ministry was founded here at Boston College. It was a very, very advanced, progressive, far, you know, a far-sighted initiative on the on the part of uh, Boston College, and it served for so many years basically as a summer school. In the early 1970s, the opening of, of uh, Catholicism, there were so many, especially I'd say, religious men and women, but then eventually more and more lay people, who really required good, good, solid graduate uh, theological and religious education. And uh, the institute did a fantastic job in doing that and gradually became a very, very fine institute at, at Boston College, you know, and with its own kind of life and vigor to it. Uh, Weston Jesuit was uh, the, uh, in Cambridge Mass, we came over in 1968. It was founded around 1928 as a uh, Theologate, a uh, Center for Theological Study for the New England Society of Jesus, province of the Society of Jesus. And then 40 years later, with the change of times, the council, et cetera, they wanted to move to a more cosmopolitan atmosphere where they could do a lot more ecumenical dialogue. So we moved into the Boston Theological Institute and we moved very close to two excellent uh, schools of theology, the Episcopal Divinity School, which was very robust at the time, and of course, Harvard Divinity School, which is... uh, one of the premier schools of uh, religion and theology in the country, in the world. Right. Uh, so, in by but financial concerns uh, by the uh, by the early two thousands, it was quite clear that it was going to be very very difficult for independent theological schools to survive economically. Huh. Uh, and that's that's turning out to be true. I mean, right. That you, you could do a survey and see. Uh, how so many schools are having a hard time making it. And so the Society of Jesus was very interested in uh, combining its uh, theology centers with the university. We already had one in North America. Regis College in Toronto was part of the University of Toronto. And so uh, Berkeley was amalgamated with, uh, joined to the uh, Santa Clara University in the West Coast, and we were joined to uh, Boston College. You know, there was a great deal of sadness in leaving Cambridge. a beautiful, (laughs) wonderful place to be. Uh, did you start at Cambridge?
0: Uh, I did not. although I, I, I yeah, we were we, it was like the second or third year here. It was two thousand and nine was okay. when I started. Okay. And, but I do remember the Jesuits leaving their physical property That's over right. there. So we
1: moved in uh, in three years, two thousand eight, we moved on to the Brighton campus of BC into another building. then our building that we're in now, uh, called Simboli Hall was was ready for us in two thousand nine, and then the community moved over here to Brighton in two thousand ten. Right. You know, it it was very hard for us to get used to a new culture at the beginning, uh, both for the institute and for us. But I would have to say that that seven years later, it's it's still a work in progress, of course, but it's a very very thriving school of theology and ministry in which we try to do good, first-rate academic theology, but always with an eye toward uh, ministerial formation. That's fantastic. And I think, well, fantastic, I think is not a bad word for it. I think we do pretty well yeah. uh, at it. so.
0: The STM is so unique in its diversity. We have priests from all walks you know, of life to different parts of the world. We have students with the MTS who are coming for an academic degree. You have the MDiv people coming in for different ministerial degrees. How do you teach to such a diverse bo- student body?
1: Yeah, with more or less success. I mean, uh, some of the classes I teach are very narrowly geared. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are not. Uh, so when it's narrowly geared, say, I'm teaching a course on theology of the priesthood right now. That's There's, not, there's international diversity in the room, cultural diversity, uh, which is fascinating. Uh, there's certainly diversity of approaches to Catholicism and Christianity. That's the church today. But it's not people coming from different degree programs so much. So most of my courses are really mainly taken by Master Divinity students and don't cross over. When when I cross over, it's with more advanced seminars. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there, the people's interest is so clear (laughs) in the subject matter that it's not difficult to bridge the differences. So. Uh, I don't have a hard time of it. I think if you ask some of my colleagues, you know, teaching scripture, for example, they might find it more of a challenge than I do personally. Right. Uh but there's certainly a lot of different constituencies in the school and that's uh makes for uh, fan- fantastic diversity. Uh, at the same time it's a challenge, you know, right. in today's church it's also a challenge to educate lay colleagues, lay candidates for ministry uh, alongside of candidates for ordained ministry. That's a challenge, but we think it's a challenge that's well with our efforts.
0: Right. What's your what's your favorite topic or concept to teach?
1: What's my favorite topic to teach? Oh my that's like asking me what's my favorite liturgical season. <laughs> um, I guess Eucharistic theology. More and more over the years, I've, uh, I've grown to love teaching Eucharistic theology.
0: I, I really love that course, by the way. It was, Thank you. I think one of the genius things you did, just to offer a pedagogy uh, point, is you did this book report, which at first I was like, I haven't seen a book report in a long time. But it allowed it allowed the class to ch- take on a text of their own and read it, and, and, it, and I thought it, it was incredibly challenging to take someone's whole, you know, study and to kind of synthesize it in a way that was that was short to the point, but also it had a lot of depth to it. I, I really enjoyed the project itself. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a really genius move on that part. Thank and,
1: well, I mean, I had several several reasons for giving that that assignment one was uh, to enable people to follow some of their own interests because there's so many aspects right of uh, the eucharist that that one can get interested in and this would allow somebody to specialize in a way you know uh, for part of the course and the the second one was to get people used to using book reviews because that's if you remember that's one of the requirements i had for the right you know, did. The assignment that you had that to look is. at uh, at least three book reviews and assess them after you looked at the book. And so that, that kind of gets you into the intellectual dialogue that's discussion. so necessary for academic life, you know, that, you know, I can write something, that's fine, that's good. But what's really important is uh, that I'm entering into, and that's one of the reasons we write, I'm entering into a conversation and uh, other other scholars and other people obviously have different resp- uh, responses to that and that's good. that can be extremely helpful
0: right was there any professors you like tried to emulate or looked up to in terms of when you first started out teaching
1: when i first started out teaching i could see things that i didn't want to do uh, <laughs> like some of my teachers were good for me, but not good for the majority of students. And I think sometimes I veer towards that because when you've done what I'm doing for so long, you have so much information in your head that you have run the risk of clouding things up by just spewing information at people. So if you were to ask me a question about a certain aspect of of Lent, for example. I might go on and on. Right, right, right. Far longer than I need to. Uh, so that's a danger in teaching. The, the The people that I like in their teaching style uh, are people who are lively, uh, passionate about their subject, uh, well-organized and uh, well-prepared, and who give me the confidence that they know where they're going with a course, that the course really has an objective and that they have a good sense of it. I, one of my... Favorite teachers, although he wasn't what people would call lively, was uh, George Lindbeck at Yale. Uh, Lindbeck had a real passion for theology, a real passion for ecumenism. Lutheran professor, he was a true gentleman, and those things all came through in his teaching. So he was—he was—I would say he was uh, one of my major uh, models as a teacher.
0: Wow. Before we're starting to wrap up a little... I would also say uh, someone
1: I never had in class, but I've had uh, whose classes I did attend a number of times and who was a great, great, uh, had a great effect on me and uh, put together all of these things is Robert Taft, uh, who's now retired, uh, who taught for many years at the Oriental uh, Institute in uh, in Rome. And uh, he had all of those qualities enormously organized and well-prepared and clear he knew how to take uh what would be very obscure material for a lot of people and uh, make it crystal clear and great passion for his field so wow he's great. a kind of a of a real uh, hero and model the... <laughs> can <laughs> i speak about one more hero yeah yeah I, go ahead yeah, yeah never no. had in class uh robert havda who was a diocesan priest from fargo north dakota north dakota who ended up being very, very, very involved in the liturgical movement. I never had Bob in, in class, and uh, by all accounts, he was a very poor teacher. Uh, <laughs> but he was a brilliant speaker and homilist and a brilliant, brilliant writer. I put together, after he passed away uh, in the early 90s, I put together a number of his shorter pieces into a book called The Amen Corner. And he was somebody who combined so many of the things that I admire. He... Combined a real passion for Christian worship, a passion for social justice, with a real appreciation for theology and a love of the church, and uh, so he he remains one of my great heroes.
0: One of the things uh, I wanted to bring up before we go to our, our fast five questions, or whatever. It's not really fast. I don't know why we call them fast. <laughs> but uh, is you you just came out with a new book, uh, right? With David Turnbloom, right?
1: Ah, uh, yes, it's just coming out. Yeah, it's a, it's an edited
0: collection. Okay, so so it's a collection. I just wanted to see if you wanted to do a plug or say what it was about.
1: Sure, it's called Catholic Sacraments. Paulist Press is publishing it. I guess it's, I don't know if it's arrived from the warehouse or something. It's, it's, we're premiering it or having a book launch, as they say. Right. Uh, in a week and a half, I guess. It's really the fruit of, it began with two issues of Church 21 Resources. You know, it was one of the great initiatives of Father Bill Leahy here at, uh, at Boston College was the Church in the 21st Century, which has a number of different aspects to it. Lots of uh, continuing ed uh, lectures, etc. And one of the things uh, that goes uh, far and wide throughout the country is Church 21 Resources on a number of subjects. They came to me a number of years ago and asked me would I do one on the Eucharist, and I did, and it turned out pretty well. I think very well and uh was was really appreciated then they came back and asked me to do one on the sacraments i i felt like i didn't have as much time to devote to it uh, so i asked them if i could have one of our doctoral students who's really excellent uh, person and uh, academic david turnbloom to uh, co-edit with me and so dave and i worked on it together uh, so that was on the sacraments in general. So then they came up with the idea of putting it into, putting the two issues together into a little book. They're short pieces, very short pieces, very accessible. It's it's more for, uh, I would say, parish adult education would be ideal right. uh, for that kind of a thing or for pastors to give them ideas. And so we collected some more things. You know, think, you know we, we sat back and said, well, what's going to work? Uh, into a book, we can we can add some things to this. Uh, we added a, a fantastic piece by uh, Aidan Cavanaugh on uh, the ritual of baptism in the 4th century. Uh, we added an excellent Eucharistic homily by uh, one of my former students named uh, Mark Reviza, a Jesuit. We added a number of things. Uh, there's a piece by Cardinal O'Malley, uh, the oh. Eucharist in it. You know, and selections from church prayers, from the catechism. Good. It's kind of a handy compendium to to help you to see where thinking about the sacraments is today. So, yeah, um, I'm hoping that uh, it gets a good, good wide audience, uh, and that it's. It's.
0: It sounds great. I uh, guess thank that's you for good. Uh, having me give the plug. You know, to, <laughs> I mean, we we have no sponsors yet, so it's awesome. like kind of open season. So
1: Paulist press will. Uh, <laughs> will uh,
0: owe you, yeah. Right. they palace daily theology that they'll have to contact us so this is our final questions that we ask and it's it's to kind of the lesson know a little bit more about yourself but just to they're just less serious this first one I, I thought it'd be great but now that we had our discussion on some like on the liturgical seasons i i've kind of like worried about it what's your favorite or least favorite liturgical song <laughs> Yeah, and we've asked everybody this, so it's not like this is not like a John Baldwin special question,
1: right? My favorite liturgical song is "All My Hope on God Is Founded." I think. Oh, okay, uh, good. It's a hymn, a British hymn. Good. Uh, coming in close second is uh, "Oh, What Their Joy and Their Glory Must Be," those blessed Sabbaths, the uh, those endless Sabbaths the blessed ones see. It's a, it's a text from uh, abelard in the uh, 11th century 12th century so uh my least favorite yeah you don't want to know that
0: (laughs) okay i'll leave it i'll leave it it, you gave us two great ones especially for someone who does so much with liturgy i'll I'll leave it at that the next question is a new one i came up with if you could invite anyone to dinner what three people dead or alive would it be and you can't choose pope francis or jesus
1: (laughs) Right. Jesus is alive. I'm glad you know. Yeah, him. yeah, uh, he's very much alive. Who would I invite to dinner? Um, I think Archbishop Rowan Williams is uh, one of the first people that uh, that comes to mind. Who else would I love to have for dinner? Somebody whom I'd like to get to know better and uh, whom I admire very much is Archbishop Supich of uh, Oh, good Chicago. And I think the third person who would make it a great dinner uh, dinner party would be Beth Johnson, Elizabeth Johnson of Fordham.
0: Wow. Uh, who's, a, who's a terrific That is a terrific...
1: And, and uh, a terrific teacher.
0: Uh, right. so Good. What, what profession would you have attempted or liked to attempt if you didn't choose the priesthood, or the Jesuits, or academia? Architecture. Well, that was fast. <laughs> Why architecture?
1: Architecture because you can build something beautiful. And I find space... I wish I, I uh, a lot of my dissertation actually had to do with the use of liturgical spaces as well as the uh, oh, This as makes a lot of cities. sense now, yeah. Uh, but, uh, so I really got to appreciate architecture now. Um, I love being in projects. I've helped, for example, in the, uh, the renovation of the cathedral in San Jose, which was a fascinating project. And I think they did extremely well. Uh, and I really, I was able to help. Uh, with some of the concepts. I don't know, of course, the details of architecture uh, at all. That would be nice. But I also helped with the uh, uh, project from the ground up, which was the, uh, I think, very successful St. Ignatius Chapel at Seattle University. Wow. Um, So I really enjoy that. I I really enjoy trying to think about how this space is going to enable us to have a worship that is both reverent and participative at the same time. And uh that's not easy no no, no I, it, and sometimes can be very controversial because <laughs> right. people have very different ideas as to what makes re, makes for reverence and right for, and what makes for participation by the same token.
0: Wow what team are you on? Are you on team bow tie or just team necktie? uh
1: I am on team uh open collar at the moment <laughs> but uh i uh, when I wear a tie, I normally wear a necktie, but I really have tried to learn how to tie a bow tie. It, it's complicated. Of, we have a couple of <laughs> colleagues who uh, wear bow ties, and I'm extremely envious of both. <laughs> okay.
0: Good. And then the final question, which I ask everyone, we just spent almost an hour sp- speaking a lot about your life, your research, us now apparently some of your architecture skills. <laughs> uh, what should the title of your autobiography or biography be?
1: Oh, gosh. Uh, What's the title of my biography? Oh, I want to say he tried to do his best. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Liturgical, like you
0: could even make it like a liturgical fever, like something like, Uh, you know, like
1: Saturday night fever. (laughs) Uh, yeah.
0: That's fine. It's a a ridiculously hard question, but I I feel like it leaves some, some reflection for when we leave here of what like what would your title be? Right, right. Yeah. Anyways, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure. It's been right. a lot of fun. Thank, Thank you so you much. Mike.
1: Thank you. A real pleasure on my part too. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. The Daily Theology podcast is produced bi Weekly by dailytheology.org. Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues
0: faith seeking understanding in everyday life.
1: You can find us online
0: at dailytheology.org on Facebook, at Daily Theology, or on Twitter, at Daily Theo.